Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a podcast for the soul and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, joining you in this moment so we can remember together that real wisdom is dangerous, but it's the direct, unconventional path to success and the good life. Dangerous wisdom can heal us and the world at the same time. Today we consider apocalyptic love wisdom. It's going to be good. This is our inaugural contemplation as the Dangerous Wisdom Podcast. We used to contemplate the same Dangerous Wisdom in the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty Podcast. We'll re-release some of those contemplations here, but we have a lot of new material to release first, including today's contemplation, and also some interviews, exciting, interesting, juicy, delicious, nutritious, paleo, superfood, snacks for the soul. These interviews have been waiting patiently to commune with you, and I will get them out to you in quick order. But we got to begin with apocalyptic love wisdom. Apocalypse has two meanings. The Greek roots of the word apocalypse they mean an uncovering or a revelation. That's it, just a revelation. We have come to associate the word with some kind of destruction or end of the world because of St. John, the Christian saint who received a vision on the Greek island of Patmos. And we have a lot of post-apocalyptic movies, shows, and books. They're everywhere because we all feel a fascination with eschatology. It's a fancy word. It's a, you know, these are fun words that as we go back out of the pandemic and we get together with people again, we're having a nice glass of wine and we can put down a $10 word. Eschatology refers to the ultimate ends of things, including the end of our life and the end of the world. Will the world end in a zombie apocalypse? That's one way we use the word apocalypse, in an eschatological sense. If we think about these things, they indicate that movies or shows or books showing us the end of the world involve apocalypse in both senses, because we see the end of the world as its final destruction, but as we see that final destruction, we get a revelation. When we finally see how we destroy the world, it will come as a definitive revelation of what we have been doing with ourselves. The meaning of our actions and the actions of humanity as a whole will become revealed to us in a great and potentially tragic cataclysm. That's what a lot of this media indicates. Apocalypse means that the end of the world is revealed as is the full extent of our ignorance. The movie Don't Look Up does a marvelous job at this double meaning of apocalypse, especially with the final line of the film apparently improvised by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a very inspired man. I think it was nicely done if it was an improvisation. 
and here's a spoiler alert, and I'm going to say what the final line was. In the final scene, DiCaprio's character says, We really did have everything, didn't we? I mean, when you think about it. And then he speaks no more. The character seems to have had some genuine insight. We might suggest that we can measure the significance of spiritual insights in terms of how profoundly they end our world. Spiritual insights come as a revelation that changes everything for us. Things are different after that. Something comes to an end when a spiritual insight is significant enough. Apocalyptic love wisdom, then, means love wisdom that ends our world. And by that we mean the fabricated world the ego clings to. What the ego clings to is not the world. The ego clings to its projections onto the world, and that fabricated world has to end. And that involves an apocalypse of thought, an apocalypse in the soul. The fabricated world of the ego relates to everything associated with I, me, and mine. Until a significant enough spiritual experience comes our way, we can't really imagine the limits of the ego's world. It's kind of like being trapped by ignorance. There's an edge there and you can't see beyond it because that's the nature of ignorance. Even after a fairly big spiritual experience... And even after many such experiences, in fact, we still can't fully understand the limits of the ego's view. Nevertheless, many things we take as real turn out to have an illusory aspect to them once we experience a transformative or apocalyptic insight. Because the ego clings, we can find in ourselves a fear of visionary love wisdom or apocalyptic love wisdom. And that amounts to a fear of ourselves, a fear of the superness of nature, and a fear of our own power, our own true nature and the nature of reality. We're talking about the ego's fear of its relative smallness in comparison to the vastness of what we really are. We have to taste that vastness in order to know ourselves. Because we are more truly that vastness than we are the ideas about ourselves the ego clings to. We have to taste our true nature in order to truly heal ourselves and our world altogether. But we will never fully experience our vastness and our true nature if we don't face the fear we have of doing just that. Because this end of the world is really serious from the ego's perspective. We have like a world on top of the world. It's, It's like we're living at a distance from the world. We have a head on top of our head, a world on top of the world, and the ego wants that fabricated world, thinks it needs it. 
Now we meet people who say they want to have a big visionary experience. I've met many such people, clients, friends, strangers that I just meet and have a conversation with, find out about them, and I hear about this real insistence. I really want to have a big visionary experience, and they might fly all the way to Peru, hike into the forest, and take big quantities of holotropic medicine, and endure a tremendous ordeal, and have a significant life adventure. They got a big story to tell. It seems all exciting and profound. And with all that effort, surely they did want to have a big insight, you know, right? You're going to get on a plane, do all that. Isn't that because you want to have a big insight? Surely they want to see, we want to see when we do these things, we want to see some hidden truth, receive some apocalyptic love wisdom. So we go on a retreat, climb a mountain, do whatever we have to do. But more often than we care to acknowledge, the louder the ego proclaims its readiness for big insights, the more we should suspect the ego still feels in control. It might be on an unconscious level. We don't know it. But see, we're, the, the one who says, I want to have the big insight, is the ego. That I is the one that's saying it. And of course the soul wants it too, but the ego proclaiming it. We, we need to pause for a moment and ask, well, what do, what do I think is actually happening here in my psyche? Because enlightenment amounts to a great disappointment for the ego. And some aspects of reality seem to terrify the ego, kind of reliably so. That's really part of what we want to acknowledge in this contemplation, just that. So the ego does what it can to keep us away from reality, including the ultimate trick of blinking out of existence in a way that leaves us without any great insight. It's a kind of spiritual overload, you could say. The ego felt a lot of bliss. It feels like, you know, we even proclaim, come back as the ego and say, oh, I experienced ego death. You, you, you did. Who did? Because the I speaking is usually the ego. The Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset touches on this aspect of our ego in a wonderful passage from his book, Revolt of the Masses, which is a kind of strange book in some ways. You might not like all of it. There are some parts of it that feel really relevant to our time. And maybe we can go into that in another contemplation. But let me read this passage. Let's contemplate it together. Here's this passage. Quote, Take stock of those around you, and you will see them wandering about, lost through life, like sleepwalkers in the midst of their good or evil fortune, without the slightest suspicion of what is happening to them. You will hear them talk in precise terms about themselves and their surroundings, which would seem to point to their having ideas on the matter. But start to analyze those ideas, and you will find that they hardly reflect in any way the reality to which they appear to refer. And if you go deeper, you will discover that there is not even an attempt to adjust the ideas to this reality. 
quite the contrary. Through these notions, the individual is trying to cut off any personal vision of reality, of their own very life. For life is at the start a chaos in which one is lost. The individual suspects this, but they are frightened at finding themselves face to face with this terrible reality. And they try to cover it over with a curtain of fantasy where everything is clear. It does not worry them that their ideas are not true. They use them as trenches for the defense of their existence, as scarecrows to frighten away reality. That's the end of the quote, and I really love this passage. It has stuck with me since college. I dated a young woman from Puerto Rico, and her father was a very brilliant man, brilliant uh, physician, uh, real dedicated to the study of philosophy, kind of a- amateur scholar, a- amateur, for the love of it. And he recommended uh, this book. And when I got a copy uh, and looked at it, that metaphor stood out so strongly. Our ideas are scarecrows we use to frighten away reality. And it resonated with me because Ortega y Gasset really carries the Socratic insight forward in our time. He's being a 20th century Socrates there. Because Socrates, as I always say, he went around trying to show people this very fact. That they might speak as if they know a thing or two, but really he saw them as sleepwalkers, and that's the word that Ortega y Gasset uses. Socrates tried to dismantle some of their ideas, but... If he did that, it meant that reality might step in. Their ideas, opinions, beliefs, supposed knowledge, it all functioned to keep reality away. Socrates threatened his culture with reality, and so they killed him. And it's very telling that we're not having any major philosophers threaten too much. Some of our public philosophers have have had a hard time of it. And I'm sure there were times that were felt tense for people like Noam Chomsky, Cornel West, Chris Hedges, and there are others. But Socrates is really kind of unique, where he's he, he was doing something, I think, special, at least how we read him in Plato. Plato's giving us an image, but it's an image coming from a mystic, coming from someone who really meant hey, we're dealing with deep, deep reality here. And that's the real threat. And so today, Socrates could approach any uh, major figure, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, the current presidents, whoever, people in Congress and the Senate, and what they don't want to hear from him is reality. They don't want reality coming in. And in the dialogues that Plato wrote, we see Socrates steering people to the place where the scarecrows start to come down. And maybe even for a moment the field is empty and quiet or could be. The silence might be drawing near. The field might be emptying. 
But before the ravens of reality can arrive, people squirm and they tell Socrates they have somewhere else to get to. They don't have time for reality. Socrates, I've got to go. And Plato, of course, probably went through, Socrates probably did too, the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they entered that field that they would have spent maybe a year, maybe longer, preparing. And if one did the right work, I, I would imagine that going through the mysteries, one could have entered that empty field and then found out about reality a little bit, a little taste. Now, Ortega's passage continues. It's interesting, so I, we'll just contemplate a little bit more, just about the same amount. We'll just go a little further, though, because it's it's quite interesting the way he does it. It's, it's nice. It's a good job he does. So here it is. Quote, the person with the clear head is the one who frees themselves from those fantastic ideas and looks life in the face, realizes that everything in it is problematic and feels themselves lost. As this is the simple truth, that to live is to feel oneself lost. The one who accepts it has already begun to find themselves to be on firm ground. Instinctively, as do the shipwrecked, they will look around for something to which to cling, and that tragic, ruthless glance, absolutely sincere, because it is a question of their own salvation, will cause them to bring order into the chaos of their life. These are the only genuine ideas, the ideas of the shipwrecked. All the rest is rhetoric, posturing, farce. Those who don't really feel themselves lost are lost without remission. That is to say, they never find themselves, never come up against their own reality. This is true in every order, even in science, in spite of science being of its nature an escape from life. The majority of scientists have given themselves to it through fear of facing life. They are not clear heads. Hence their notorious ineptitude in the presence of any concrete situation. Our scientific ideas are of value to the degree in which we have felt ourselves lost before a question. We have seen its problematic nature and have realized that we cannot find support in received notions, in prescriptions, proverbs, mere words. The one who discovers a new scientific truth has previously had to smash to atoms almost everything they had learnt, and they arrive at the new truth with hands blood-stained from the slaughter of a thousand platitudes. Okay, that's the end of that passage. Now, I don't agree with all the nuances here, 
But Ortega y Gasset's criticism seems to have a lot of resonance with our social and political situation. And these particular lines, I think, have a resonance with our existential situation as well. That feeling <laughs> that we really have to, really have to confront how much we don't know. Really have to receive that humiliation for some of us, for most of us, but it's a deep humility. And to have to touch life nakedly, directly, really on the spot, and with creativity, but also with just a real grace and grit, right? On an intellectual level, so many of us might reject this suggestion quite strongly, the suggestion Ortega y Gasset is making about us, that we have a bunch of ideas that we keep as scarecrows to, to frighten away reality, that we're digging trenches against reality and digging trenches against our own sense of feeling lost and not willing not being willing to accept that and just say, okay, I'm lost. I don't know. And Socrates wanted people to stay there. That's the aporia. That's the place he brought them to. The I'm lost, I don't know. When he finally got people to admit, okay, I guess I don't know what justice is, what love is, what success is. And if they could just finally say, I don't know, and stay at that place, the aporia where it feels like we can't move forward. And ecologically, there's a big resonance here, right? We're lost. I'm sure lots of people think they know what to do. I think Ortega y Gasset might say, yeah, they need to get more lost first before we should even really listen to them. And for some of us, we might have had spiritual experiences that we think of as big, profound experiences, you know, they might have really been amazing on, in so many ways. We might think we've gone to great lengths to have these spiritual experiences, or that they came to us because of special gurus, special uh, teachers that we went to and studied with. But somewhere beneath the surface, the unconscious dimensions of our ignorance swim in the deep waters of the psyche in ways that drive our conscious experience of life, such that we remain ignorant of more than we can fathom. That should seem unsurprising, really. What we don't know seems to dramatically eclipse what we do know or what we think we know, but again, it, cr it creates also a veil. You you can't fathom the extent of your own ignorance. Otherwise, it wouldn't be ignorance. You know, unless we're omniscient, right? Ignorance creates that problem that we can't see what we're ignorant of a lot of times. We might suspect it or be able to deduce something, but the experiential transformation that we're going to go through when we really see something new it shifts a lot, more than we can imagine, from the standpoint that we're in. So if we can admit to ourselves 
that not only do we suffer from a perhaps significant level of ignorance, but that something in us fears what we might see if we cut through our ignorance. Then maybe we could have more compassion for ourselves and each other. Just, just that, <laughs> to see that something in us fears what we might see if we got rid of the ideas that we're certain about, if we cut through our ignorance in a way that would be significant enough that it would shatter some of those dearly held beliefs, things that we're certain about. Can we have that compassion for ourselves? Wow, yeah, you know what? I don't know that I want to have my sense of reality shaken that deeply. I don't know if I would handle that well. Or at least to say, I don't know if there isn't something unconscious in me that says, hey, I've got a limit to how much reality can get shaken, how many of my ideas I'm willing to let go of, because I really like some of my ideas. And unconsciously, I might be attached to some of those ideas because they, they might function as scarecrows. And maybe other people are like that too. And they might be about, they might be like that about things that I myself think, oh, that, what's, what's the big deal? You know? Like, you don't have to hate black people. Why, why would that be so scary? But each of us has our own thing that seems scary to the ego. And we all have probably some that we would share. That we would say, okay, well, I know your thing that you're scared of. I don't have a problem with that one. And I've got some things that you, I'm scared of that you probably don't have a problem with. But then there might be real, real shakeups to our image of reality that both of us would say, whoa, okay, that was intense. That was big. And so maybe we could begin to find new ways, not only to help each other dissolve our ignorance, but perhaps we could make totally new efforts in this direction so that we could dispel the pattern of insanity that threatens the conditions of life. I mean that whole pattern of insanity of the dominant culture. You can contemplate that a little bit further on your own. I mean, just let that stay with you. Just this idea that, oh, what, what if we all do share that, fe- that ignorance goes together with fear and that underneath all the other emotional constellations that we might uh, find ourselves visiting, anger, self-centeredness, pride, jealousy, craving, clinging, attachment, underneath all of that is ignorance. And the emotional feeling of that ignorance sometimes is fear. It's, it, it might be the strongest emotion around that ignorance. So it's as if to say, beneath my anger is some kind of fear. Beneath my pride, beneath, beneath the surface thing that we experience. Now we're going to consider a few examples of people who encountered something that went far enough beyond their paradigm that the, this kind of primal experience of, of a deep paradigm shatter evoked fear 
in these people. Now, we just want to get a sense of how natural this fear is in us, even if it might be entirely unconscious for some of us, because some of us might just go to our grave insisting, no, but I really do want to know reality, and we won't allow, won't accept that there might be a fear there. So it could be unconscious, and maybe there are some people who really don't experience it, but I would think that those very people would be awake by now. They would just be totally enlightened, and, and then they wouldn't be insisting about anything. So what we're touching on is we, we, we want to recognize that our ego fabricates an identity and a sense of reality, even an image of reality, an image of ourselves in reality. And when that fabrication gets shaken enough, the ego just naturally reacts with fear and as a kind of preemptive strike, I guess, against reality, the ego might even keep us away from situations where we might encounter it. See, that's the important thing. It's when you're sitting on the meditation cushion and the ego starts to feel that things are, are getting out of control, it might launch a kind of preemptory a preemptive strike, you know? It might keep us away from teachers who would really end our world. And I don't mean this, you know, because th that's a dangerous phrase. I I'm talking more somebody who would look like Buddha or Rumi than your average, hip, edgy, you know, whoever kind of uh, spiritual teacher that we see on social media or something. But but there might be really sincere teachers, you know, with real depth of presence where people just sense a deep wisdom and they may have come from a real lineage of of practitioners. And we might just really be able to sense there a, a true teacher, true presence of wisdom and compassion and beauty, grace. We might the ego might steer us away from those teachers, or if we happen to encounter them, the ego does lots of things to keep the teaching from going too deep, and that's all stuff that we have to be able to reckon with. It's it's part of spiritual materialism, and once we prepare ourselves and start to think through and maybe start to soften some of these things, we can do the work that we need to do to to, to also what goes together is dissolving and softening that fear, so that we can gain much greater intimacy with reality. Now we're going to begin by going back to a thread that we started in a previous contemplation. We, dis we considered the work of Dr. Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer. Mayer was a successful and respected psychologist. She was a clinician and also a scientist doing research in her field. She was well-regarded, had been trained in the Dominant culture, science, got her PhD at Stanford. She was on staff at Berkeley in addition to having a private practice. And she details a wide range of what we refer to as anomalous data in her book, Extraordinary Knowing. It's a good book to read. In our previous contemplation, we considered how the existence of extraordinary knowing changed the course of her life. When she encountered it, discovered it, there it was, it was a little freaky, and she had this recognition 
wait a second, this changes everything. It was kind of like an apocalypse of thought. She not only experienced the extraordinary knowing of others, that other people, she encountered other people who were able to demonstrate to her that they knew things that they shouldn't have been able to know. So that's kind of ex what extraordinary knowing means. So she encountered other people who, who had experiences of extraordinary knowing, some of which they demonstrated to her, but she herself also experienced extraordinary knowing on at least two occasions, so to speak, as the knower, as the one who was experiencing the extraordinary knowing. And she talks about both of them in this book, Extraordinary Knowing. Now, in one case, she felt herself, as she described it, being moved to find a lost object which she should not have been able to locate, as if a power she might pretend to understand had worked through her. Now, here's her description from the book. She writes, quoting here, My youngest sister was living with my husband and me, finishing her last year of high school. My husband's aunt had given him an extremely showy gold watch, one he'd never wear. In a burst of generosity, he'd given it to my sister. My sister wore it every day, but she was seventeen and careless. She'd leave it lying around in the kitchen, in the car, in the laundry room. One afternoon, I was working in my bedroom when she burst in and shouted, I can't find that watch. We retraced where she'd been and when she'd last had it. No luck. My husband was due home in two hours. My sister was panicked. She was sure he'd be quick to notice that she wasn't wearing the watch and ask where it was. We circled back over all the places we already looked. We were about to give up. And at that point, something happened that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I was standing in our upstairs hall near the door of my husband's study. I walked into his study, deliberately, intentionally, but with no awareness of volition or will on my part. It was as though I was watching myself in a slow-motion film. I walked straight to a closet in the far corner of the room, a closet I'd entered maybe twice, if that, over the course of our entire marriage. As I walked, I wasn't aware of thinking, of deciding, of choosing to do any of the things I was doing or about to do, I was just doing them. I bent down, again it felt absolutely deliberate, and reached deep into the closet behind a row of shoes, then behind some boxes behind the shoes. My hand went directly to a small leather case in the very back corner. I lifted out the case, stood up, and opened it. Inside was the watch. Weirdly, I felt neither surprise nor excitement. I simply expected it. I walked out of my husband's study, called for my sister, and showed her the watch. 
Where was it? she demanded. I tried to tell my sister what happened, but it was hard to find the words. She looked disbelieving. I hazarded a guess as to how the watch got into my husband's closet. Perhaps annoyed at rescuing the watch from my careless sister one too many times, he'd taken it and hidden it away. My sister was skeptical, but couldn't come up with a more compelling suggestion. I decided I'd save face for everyone. I put the watch back in the closet, and when my husband got home, I told him what a panic my sister had been in and how she'd spent all afternoon looking for it. My husband was calm and casual in his reply. I was wondering when she'd miss it, he said. She left it in the bathroom after you'd gone to work this morning. You weren't here, so I thought I'd try teaching her a lesson. I put it away in my closet. He went and got it, then handed it over to me. Tell her to be more careful with it from now on, he said. So that's the passage. And somehow, Mayer had no conscious difficulty processing this experience. Even though deep reflection into such an experience might lead us to question such intimate issues as agency or free will, subjectivity or consciousness, the nature of ethics, the nature of knowing, an experience like this of feeling guided and being able to do something we we shouldn't be able to do, being able to find something we shouldn't be able to find, to know something we shouldn't be able to know, that could strike us rather powerfully. In this case, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to have a profound effect. She just went on. However, in the course of writing her book, Dr. Mayer had another experience that did provoke more of this sort of reflection because it somehow touched a deeper layer of the ego, or at least it shook the ego loose enough that she could consciously register the shock. And we could call this an ontological shock. (laughs) Sounds like a fancy word. It's another fancy word we can throw around. But it means we experience an ontological shock is experiencing something that shocks or maybe even demolishes some aspect of our basic sense of reality. Because our basic sense of reality is you can't know things that you can't know. <laughs> so that's, it's, we're vulnerable to that with experiences like this. And we somehow might experience something that indicates reality itself is just not what we have assumed. We can suggest that our basic image of reality, our basic feel for what the whole cosmos is and what we are in it, usually remains highly resistant to fundamental challenges. And philosophers have talked about this a lot. How, you know, it's one thing to change something further out in our web of beliefs, but when you get really close to the center, to things that are really intimate, space, time, identity, agency, it starts to be dangerous, dangerous experience. Now, this creates problems for all of us, you could you might sense that because the basic image of reality implanted in all of us by the dominant culture does not function very well so we already know we have to shift that image 
but the experience of a better image can feel threatening to the ego. That's a, a strange situation. It's a kind of bind we're in. And this, this wisdom traditions have talked about this. This is part of the Plato's cave allegory, or or we see it in the Matrix. Remember the 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 fellow in the first Matrix who who is knows he's eating a digital steak, but he says, "Hey, it tastes like steak to me," <laughs> and he he wants to trade that in for reality. And of course, in the in the Matrix, the reality, the real reality outside the Matrix, is kind of glum. But reality might be wonderful. That's not the reason the ego is afraid. It's afraid because it thinks that its image is real and that it its value is bound up with the image that it has or how to navigate and all that is bound up with the image. That's why bad education, like we get in the dominant culture, because everybody gets a bad education here, you have to work real hard to get out of that. But a bad education is so dangerous to the soul because it puts an image that the ego becomes attached to, but that image is not good. A better way of knowing transcends the ego. All our insights arise in a way that transcends the ego, but the ego tries to maintain its basic image of reality, even if we sometimes acknowledge the presence of the mystery. In other words, this all has an existential dimension. As egos, we get really excited to pronounce ourselves experts on the great mystery of life. We fancy ourselves sensitive, intelligent, insightful. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes we also hate ourselves. Maybe the two go together in this culture. Some of us think we understand how everything is connected. We can say that. Oh, everything, I experience things as they're all connected. But in fact, we don't know what's out there. Not all of it or even most of it. And when the ego confronts the gap between its ideas, the scarecrows, and reality, when the scarecrows fail to frighten reality away, then reality may turn the tables on the ego and its scarecrows, and it may flood our carefully tilled fields with not only ravens, crows, wolves, and bears, but also rains, fires, earthquakes, and lightning. We can arrive at better ways of knowing by various means. Often, the knowing comes in spite of our ignorance. That means we can know in ways that tap into the mystery even if we ourselves lack wisdom, compassion, and grace. Some of the hacks we use to know in a better way or a different way involve ways of just distracting the ego. So we have to be really honest about that. That, See, the meditative traditions take it for granted that as you cultivate yourself, then you will open up the capacity to know in better ways. To, to You will be able to touch the mystery and allow a more skillful way of knowing, a visionary love wisdom. But the reverse is not true. Just because I, I, I could read your tarot cards and tell you something that I shouldn't be able to know doesn't mean that I'm wise, loving, or beautiful, graceful being. And I can even talk very spiritual language around those other ways of knowing, but it does not mean 
that I have really achieved any measure of wisdom. I could be just like a child playing around with adult toys. And sometimes all we're doing is a fancy way of distracting the ego so that the other way of knowing, which we're already woven into, it's not like you have to find your way into it, we're in it right now. The issue is to stop trying to frighten it away. So a simple example would be a, a dowsing rod. If we use a dowsing rod, the ego can just give up. The ego knows that it doesn't know where the water is, for instance, if you were looking for water with a dowsing rod. And so the ego just focuses on the dowsing rod or the pendulum or whatever it is. It gives the ego something to do while the real work of knowing gets done by sacred powers and inconceivable causes that always escape the ego's grasp. So we can turn down the noise of the ego, either by means of distracting it, pacifying it, or dimming it, or we can take a spiritual approach that expands us beyond the ego. We we really start to see what the ego is. We start to see the noise as noise. We look at the noise, even. See it clearly, and that liberates us into the silence, the vastness of what we really are. Now, we said that uh, Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer had uh, another experience of extraordinary knowing, and she had the opportunity to enter into it using this method of turning down the noise or distracting the ego. And the way she did that was by participating in a Gansfeld experiment. The word Gansfeld, it's G-A-N-Z-F-E-L-D, it's a German word that literally means complete field, Gansfeld, complete field. And we can think of it as a field that completely covers over our habitual field of perception and sort of cancels it out. That's the sense of field here. It's the field of perception. And we might refer to the Gansfeld protocol as noise-canceling headphones for the soul. (laughs) That's one way to think of it. The Gansfeld produces an experience that cancels the noise of the ego so the soul can hear itself think. The Gansfeld protocol can target both the visual and auditory field. Typically, the visual field is made monotone by covering the eyes with special goggles. They're not that special. You can replicate this at home by cutting a ping-pong ball in half or repurposing ski goggles or other goggles that you could paint white to make a monotone visual field. Don't go out and buy more plastic. You know, go to a thrift store, find an old pair of goggles and disinfect it to your heart's delight and then paint it or an old uh, ping-pong ball that you can cut open with a razor blade and make goggles that you put on. And uh, depending on your facial contours, a ping-pong ball cut in half might feel uncomfortable, so the goggles might feel better. But what happens is, everywhere your eyes look, all they see is white. They see a uniform field. And that monotone, see, writes over the ordinary noise that the ego would make. Because we don't just see the world as it is. That's part of the mystic's revelation. In a way we do, and in a way we don't. So... 
the Gansfeld writes over the entire visual input. And the auditory field similarly gets covered over because you could put on headphones that might play a uniform sound or maybe even white noise. So you don't hear anything but, but either a single uniform tone or, or white noise. And this comes across as monotonous. So for both of these, there's nothing for us to make sense of. There's, there's nothing for the fabricator to do. And there is this fabricator in there. I love that line in the Pali Canon where Siddhartha, the person we refer to as Buddha, where he's talking about his enlightenment, and he, ha- he says that he, he says out loud, O house builder, I have found you out. And I, I'm tearing down the rafters. I won't live in this house anymore. He won't be confined to a box. He's going to live like a wild person now. And so he saw the fabricator. And here we just cover up. The fabricator can't do its ordinary work. Philosophically speaking, we have nothing to look at or listen to outside of ourselves. The noise or monotone cancels out the habitual processes of perception, and that can open up the possibility for non-habitual perception. Non-habitual perception. What would that be like? Because our whole life is our habits, the things we practice. What we, what we practice is what we get good at. Now, in a typical experiment of the kind we'll consider here together, a computer randomly assigns one of six images, or it could be one of four images in, in other Gansfeld protocols, but there's a group of images. In an, uh, Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer's case, it was six. So there's a bank of six images. The computer randomly is going to pick one, and one person will be a sender. They will be the only person who knows which image it is once the computer picks it and tells it only to the sender, who is in an isolated room. And that person is going to send that image to another person who is also completely isolated and is in a Gansfeld experience. So you're a sender, let's say. You go to an isolated room. Computer randomly selects one of six images. There it is. It appears in front of you. Nobody else in the experiment knows it but you. You're all alone. You focus on that image, and you try to mentally send the image to another person you've never met and who is also isolated completely in a different room than you're in. And you might do that for half an hour, maybe less in some experiments, but it might be 30 minutes. You sit there and just try to imagine sending the picture. And the person in the Gansfeld just experiences the Gansfeld. And what that might mean is that they might see imagery. When the mind no longer has habitual perception going on, it could start to perceive in a different way, in a non-habitual way, or resonate maybe more with subtle things rather than all the gross things that we're normally relating with. These are just relative terms. But, you know, the, the gross perceptions, buildings and our hands and our body and all this, maybe there's a more subtle channel of perception or a non-habitual way to perceive reality. And we're just in the Gansfeld, and who knows what will happen, but we just kind of relax for half an hour while the sender is trying to send us something, and after the sender finishes trying to send the image, an experimenter goes into the receiver's room, the one who was in the Gansfeld, brings them out of the Gansfeld experiment, and the experimenter then gives this receiver the six possible images that the computer might have chosen. 
and they ask the receiver to put the six images in order, with the first ranked image as the one they think most likely to have been the one the sender was attempting to send. Now, maybe we should uh, pause here and acknowledge some of the limits of language. The notion of sending and receiving messages may not skillfully and realistically express the way language and communication work. And they may not express really the way reality works. But in terms of these experiments, if we use a term like sender and receiver, that helps us to follow and understand the experimental protocol. So we're just using relative terms here. And you can see from our linear mind and our habits of even thinking about such a thing, that's how we're picturing it. There's a sender, they send a message, the receiver receives it. We don't know (laughs) exactly what is going on. What we do know is that from our habitual image of reality, it should, this should not be possible. This shouldn't work. There's somebody in a room who thinks they're sending me an image. No, that, that doesn't, that's not normal. That's not part of our, our, our habitual image of reality. We don't really have a good sense of what would allow that to work. Is it sending? Is it something else? But at any rate, <laughs> you understand these roles. So the experimenters ask the receiver to do this ranking. You know, why don't they just say, what did you see? What are they sending? Well, because they give you these images because many receivers will insist that they have no idea what the image is. If you just would walk in and say, well, tell me what you saw, they would say, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't see anything. Some people would say, I didn't see anything or I don't know. And so the ego steps right in and starts to insist. And so... I mean, maybe you can just imagine being in a situation like that. Like right now, if I ask you, what do you think I'm thinking right now? Think of what number am I thinking right now? I'm thinking, okay, if you said 34, that's great. But if I asked you, what do you, do you, do you know, you, you might've just been thinking, is he, is he thinking of a number? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but okay. So it's, it, we might, you, maybe you did know, but your experience might've been, well, I don't know what you're thinking. And that that itself just says a lot. The I, the ego, the fragment of a whole. Okay, there's a wholeness, and there's a tiny, tiny, tiny little splinter called the ego, and it it insists on behalf of the whole. And that, that alone doesn't make sense, right? Because you say, well, I don't know. Why would the ego say that? Why does it insist that the wholeness doesn't know And of course, you might say, well, it's just being honest. That part of me doesn't know. That's fine. It could also just be quiet. And we we might then hear. Okay, so when we say I, we speak as if we mean something whole, but in fact, we just mean a part, a tiny little fragment. And this might make sense intellectually, but this we're trying to touch or, or sense or think about a deep, deep habit. When we say, I know, or when we say, I don't know, that I is just a fragment. Even when it thinks it knows, and we we say the answer, I know what it is, but the knowing that we're talking about is still really a fragment. Now, we have said that Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer, a respected psychologist and psychotherapist working at a prestigious research university, trained in dominant culture science, she took the opportunity to participate in this kind of Gunsfeld experiment. After she spent time in the Gunsfeld, a graduate student came with six images being used in the experiment and asked Mayer to look at them. Mayer found herself unable to recognize any of the images she saw. So her conscious mind knew knew nothing. 
She told the graduate student she had no idea. The grad student told her to rank the images anyway, even if it seemed random to her. So, in other words, she's got no conscious idea how to arrange these six images. It feels random to rank them in any order at all. Nevertheless, she did so. She agreed to participate in the experiment. That's what you do. Okay, just put them in order. We know. We know you don't know. Just go ahead and rank them. She put the image of a red sunset first. And then rank the rest of the images. After the grad student then left the room, he returned with a sealed envelope containing the image sent to her psychically during the Gansfeld experience. So now it was going to be revealed for the first time. No one has known up to this point. Mayer opens the envelope, and there's a picture of a red sunset. The same image she had ranked as her top choice, even though she had no conscious knowledge of receiving it. And then in her book, she describes her reaction. She writes, quote, At that moment, the world turned weird. I felt the tiniest instant of overwhelming fear. It was gone in a flash, but it was stunningly real. It was unlike any fear I've ever felt. My mind split I realized that I knew something I was simultaneously certain I didn't know. And I got it. This is what my patients meant when they said, My mind's not my own, or I'm losing my mind. The feeling was terrifying. My mind had slipped out from under me, and the world felt out of control. I recovered quickly and launched in on logical explanations. First, and most compelling, it must have been pure coincidence. The odds I'd picked the right card were, after all, one in six, and that uncanny feeling... I knew perfectly well that coincidence does that to people. We all want to feel magical and omnipotent and will grasp for that feeling whenever we can. Uncanny feelings are one result, and psychologists ever since Freud have been coming up with reasons why. But I knew It wasn't that simple, and my arguments with myself didn't carry the day. Once again, I was remembering my sister's watch, walking straight to that box in back of my husband's closet had taught me a feeling, a full-bodied, single-minded, wholehearted feeling I'd described as being walked by the experience. It was as if the experience knew me. It brought a thoroughly unaccustomed sensation to the surface, a feeling that was categorically unlike ordinary knowing. The fraction of a second that had me landing on the red sunset, so brief and so ephemeral it barely registered, was an echo of the sensation I'd had when I'd walked straight to my sister's watch. This time, I'd walked 
not across a room, but across my mind, walked straight out of my ordinary knowing into an inchoate, uncertain mental state that, maybe, deserves to be called knowing too. It took the graduate student jolting me into the realization that I'd picked the correct card for me to consider, maybe, letting it in. After I left the lab, I realized that I'd gotten what I'd come for, some feeling for a quality of knowing that gave me that hook for believing. I wondered if I'd see the Gansfeld experiments differently, in the sense that I'd now see that there was something there worth seeing. Part of me still insisted that picking the red sunset was merely coincidence, no more than a lucky guess and nothing to do with the Gansfeld state, or turning down the noise. Okay, that's the passage, and it's really funny at that close to read Mayer trying to write this off as coincidence. Especially because she knows, and she in the book she reviews, she, she reviews how the Gonsfeld science is really clear. The success rates on these experiments exceed mere chance. Chance cannot, no way, not possible, not an acceptable explanation. It, these experiments clearly, clearly prove something beyond chance is going on. We don't know what, but this is a well-established and highly scrutinized finding that has stymied critics of anomalous data. The Gansfeld experiments simply work. It's no one's fault that they disrupt the dominant culture's paradigms. But here Dr. Mayer found herself resisting her own experience and the experience of countless other people, not just all the people who have participated in Gansfeld experiments, but countless other people around the world at various times. Despite the strength of Gansfeld and other anomalous data, many professional skeptics, and what we could call the metaphysical police, have written off such data. Many of the people who dismiss such phenomena never look at the data. Some look at the data and then ignore anything they can't explain away, but some don't even have any idea of how careful these experiments have been conducted, how carefully, how much care, how much analysis and critique and refinement have gone into some of these experiments. Dr. Mayer spoke to Hal Putoff, who was one of the scientists who worked on remote viewing, which refers to the ability to view something without ordinary perception, to see something you shouldn't be able to see. A person sitting alone in a totally isolated room, might see something on the other side of the planet, or even in another time. Putoff spoke to Mayer about a fellow named Joe McMonagall who participated in government-funded remote viewing experiments. And here's what he told Mayer. 
He said, Joe McMonagall was one of our very few subjects whose ability to perceive places thousands of miles away was so reliable we could document it consistently and unequivocally. Soon after we began conducting experiments with him, he started realizing what he was doing. One day he looked at me and said he had to tell me something. He'd done duty in Vietnam, and while he was there, he'd seen the worst human beings can do to each other. He'd always thought that taught him fear as bad as it gets. But what he wanted to tell me was it was nothing compared to the fear he felt when he really grasped the extent of his remote viewing abilities. It hit him. What he was seeing didn't amount to watching some kind of movie. Instead, he was there, in the viewing, immersed in a reality utterly unrelated to this ordinary life. He was terrified. It shakes the foundations. The fear Joe described and the fear you're seeing in your patient, I think it may be as basic as any fear there is. And then commenting on that, she writes the following, Hal was right. That level of fear is elemental. It reaches straight into the most deeply intimate, personal ways we've learned to trust the world and ourselves in it. In the face of fear like that, no wonder rational consideration of apparently anomalous experiences is so elusive. No wonder the scientific establishment looks the other way, moves elsewhere as fast as it can. It's really sensitive stuff that we're touching here because it's not to say that reality is frightening and we're protecting ourselves from it. It's that the image we have of what we are and what the cosmos is and what the meaning of life is and how we know and what agency is, all all of those ideas are frightening away reality even if reality isn't frightening, (laughs) Right? It looks that way from this perspective. But it doesn't change the primal nature of these experiences. I think it's so easy for us to underestimate this. And especially, again, for those of us who have tried to work on ourselves, tried to experience, like, there's a part of us that's hungry to experience reality. It doesn't mean that we are free of this kind of primal and deeply unconsciously held fear. Now, Mayer not only experienced this fear in herself, but she experienced it through a client of hers. And she mentions, of course, in the passage that we considered before, she mentions that she understood clients in general who would say things like, I'm losing my mind. And she could she understood that. It's so interesting. You can find a lot of contemplation in the in the history of the world's wisdom traditions on the relationship, the subtle relationship between enlightenment and madness. 
And so there is something to confront there. But she also had one client in particular who experienced this fear specifically in relationship to knowing things she shouldn't have been able to know. Now, in the book, she gives the client the pseudonym Grace, which is a good name for what we're talking about. And this uh, woman, Grace, went to see Dr. Mayer seeking help with a problem that frightened her. She could know things she shouldn't be able to know. Now, Grace described the first time this knowing caused problems for her. As a graduate student, she enjoyed enough success that her teachers respected her and she had funding for her research. Now, she wanted to take that funding and work with one professor in particular. And so she enrolled in one of his seminars. And one day, he gave the, all the graduate students enrolled in the seminar a complicated problem to work on. And Grace dutifully wrote down the problem along with everyone else. And when she finished writing the problem down, she suddenly said the answer out loud to four decimal places. And the problem was she was right. And there was no way she could have known the answer to this complicated problem. Not possible for her to have figured it out. And the professor knew that this was, it's impossible, no way. So he accused her of stealing his notes, of somehow getting a glimpse of his notes and uh, copying down the problem. And then he refused to work with her because he said he insisted she couldn't be trusted. Her fellow students also began to show distrust after this, and it created a big problem for her. And so after that, once she got out of school and she entered the working, the private sector for, to, for employment, this would happen, and when it, when it would start to create suspicion, when people would start to be suspicious about the things that she knew, that she wasn't able to explain how she knew them, but they would be, turn out to be critical for projects they were working on, People would start to get uncomfortable, and she would just find a way to change jobs or even change cities. She would just take a job in, in, in another country, even. She had been all over the world, worked on really interesting projects because she did good work. It certainly helps that she knew things she shouldn't have been able to know. But Grace told Dr. Mayer that it just scared her, and she, she wanted to be normal, is how she put it. And Mayer got to witness the fear firsthand, the fear that would take hold of grace when they began to revisit past experiences of knowing things that she shouldn't have been able to know because they were trying to eliminate them. So grace was saying, look, if this is all a fantasy, just let's, let's find out, let's prove it. I want to know if this isn't real. And so they, were, they would go through the experiences to look at all the details to see if she could have somehow had a reason for knowing what she knew. You know, maybe it wasn't just something beyond ordinary knowing. It wasn't extraordinary knowing. It was ordinary knowing, but you didn't see the, notice the clues. And as she would retell the stories and go into them, a panic would sometimes invade this woman. And Dr. Mayer writes the following about her. She writes, I gradually became convinced Grace did have unusual and remarkable intuitive capacities. But the depth and extent of her virulent fear impressed me at least as much. As a psychoanalyst, I'm used to seeing fear. 
But Grace's fear was unusual. She didn't just fear for her mental stability. She feared for the stability of the world around her, the existence of a world she could count on, reliably constrained by boundaries of space, time, and individual identity. That last bit matters a lot for us in our contemplation here. That's the end of the quote. Individual identity. Space-time, too, you know? This is what synchronicities are, a rupture of space-time and identity, and even agency sometimes. And this is right here is where many of us keep an entire army of scarecrows, whole battalions of scarecrows, right along the borderline of our own skin our sense of time, our sense of space, our sense of agency. That's where the whole army of scarecrows really has mounted up a big resistance. A last, if you want to call it last season, in the last crop or bouquet of contemplations, we, we contemplated together the insightful suggestion from Arthur Bentley, philosopher from Turtle Island, his suggestion that human skin is the last line of defense for the main philosophy of the dominant culture. We suggested that professional philosophers, the people we call philosophers today, and also our scientists, that includes all of them, the social scientists, the psychologists, the physicists, many of our scientists, philosophers, public intellectuals, hide behind this Maginot line Anything that threatens our identity at any level is going to have a mob of scarecrows sent its way. But if something threatens the barrier of skin, and if it also threatens time, space, our sense of reality and agency, then we send in the whole army of scarecrows, or at least the force of an army. It shows up. That army will show up at the limits of our thought, the boundaries of our ego, and they will defend the illusion of an independent territory. As a child, I used to always wonder why depictions of people experiencing, say, paranormal events or superpowers or anything like that, why, would, why does it, do the images show people experiencing fear and rejecting it, and I just want to be normal. Because when we think about it, we think, wait, Grace was able to know things that, that nobody else could know. And she had, a, Mayor, Dr. Mayer says she had this fantastic career. It just looked like, uh, to look at her, her CV was to look at someone who had lived a really interesting life and done really interesting things on the basis of this capacity to know in an extraordinary way. But she just wanted to be normal and felt scared. I thought that was weird when I was young. Why wouldn't someone feel joyful and excited to discover they had the capacity to uh, know things they shouldn't be able to know, maybe to read minds or have precognitive you know, premonitions, or, or even just encounter something truly mysterious in the world? But fear seems to be the, the most typical reaction, especially the, the stranger the experience. And this explains in part why we keep these experiences at bay 
at least in our context. See, this is an issue. Our context, the meaning of these experiences, they arise as scary, dependent on us and dependent on our context. And this is a context, the dominant culture is a context severely lacking in its capacity to empower us to receive and work with these kinds of experiences. It's a kind of degraded cultural context, severely degraded. We're all experiencing soul scurvy. And because of that, we may be more inclined to experience fear and confusion in the presence of extraordinary knowing and other anomalous events. And that fear may extend into a fear of ridicule or suspicion because so much habit energy has gone into the dominant paradigms that if you start describing something that breaks those paradigms, you get ridiculed and you're afraid to tell people about it. Happens all the time. And this in turn explains or helps explain why we we really cannot take up the arts of awareness necessary for a better way of knowing in the manner of a bag of tricks. And I, I, I kind of criticize this or encourage reflection about it. I critique, and you know, I mean critique. I'm not afraid to say that, that we need to engage in critique. I just don't mean mere criticism, mere shouting or something, or poo-pooing. But we really need to be critical about the way that we take so many practices that should be real arts of awareness and arts of life, and we turn them into a bag of tricks. So mindfulness is just, you know, a thing that we do. It has nothing to do with knowing the nature of reality and, and fulfilling our highest ethical virtues and values. Not only do we need a sense of ethics and sacredness to work properly with better ways of knowing, but if we leap foolishly into practices that invite powerful experiences, those experiences might just overload our system. Too much meditation, for instance, can send someone to the hospital with a case of psychosis or some other kind of mental breakdown. That can happen. And that too used to puzzle me. Does it puzzle you? And don't we all want to experience reality? How could meditation lead to a mental breakdown? Well, people aren't ready. And there's nothing frightening about reality. You are reality. We are reality. The mental breakdown is coming from glimpsing things that are true about ourselves. But we're not ready for them. And so, on the one hand, it's puzzling. On the other hand, it's not puzzling. And I have to admit, some of my own experiences of of extraordinary knowing came with some level of confusion and and probably resistance, I, I would think. So, for instance, I come from coal mining folk. My grandparents had little money, really. <laughs> they were, you know, they lived in uh, not very great situation, ecologically horrific little place. And uh, I would guess that wealthy people rarely bother playing the lottery. I can't imagine that they do that, but my poor grandmother played it fairly frequently, you know. There's a real sense of hope that it gives poor people. And when I was very young, talking like two, three years old, I dreamed lottery numbers, and I told them to my grandmother, 
because you know as a little boy you naturally notice she watched the always there in front of the television this is back in the day where you had to turn on the tv at the right time and watch the live drawing or you or else you'd miss it and you'd have to wait for the newspaper the next day and she every day sat there and uh watch those numbers come up, and, some, and she frequently played them. Not, she, wasn't, uh, she didn't even have enough money to play every day. But. So I told her, I had I dreamed lottery numbers, I told them to her. She didn't play the lottery that day, but those numbers are the ones that came out. I, I hit it exact. And now naturally that produced astonishment, also excitement, and the family encouraged me to try to dream more lottery numbers, but I had no idea how I did it in the first place. And there's something about that energy that left me unable to do it. It's just that, you know, like the immediate, like now you have to do it. And so I, I recognized, I don't remember being scared, but I, I certainly had no idea how I did it. And I, I certainly, and I, I just know that I didn't know how to do it again. I just felt I, I didn't know how to do it again. Actually, <clears throat> I think, left a kind of long-term difficulty with remembering dreams. There are also things that happened as a child that I knew that were not good things, and I ended up having nightmares about them. Now, my, I, my friend Tara recently reminded me that many, many years ago, many, many, I don't know how many, some years ago, I learned to work with tarot cards. And at first I tried to read the cards in a standard way, which... I mean, what does that mean? I, I feel it's kind of like interpreting a dream and and draws on something like archetypal patterns. That's like a standard way in the dominant culture to read them. But one day, I didn't know how to make sense of the cards in relation to the question the person had asked me, which had to do with buying a house. So they asking about buying a house, and I was drawing a blank because the cards didn't seem to have any practical advice for choosing a house. A woman was asking me about real houses and wanted to know what to do, and the cards seemed to express patterns that I, I couldn't hitch to the world. I couldn't hitch to details that would make sense for someone to to find a home. Now I'm I was staring at the cards, and the energy in the situation intensified. This woman's waiting. I have nothing to say. And the tension's kind of ratcheting up, and then something happened. And instead of reading the cards directly, the cards seemed to evoke a vision in me. And I read that vision to the questioner. It's almost like an, an inversion of the way things are... I'm supposed to look at the cards, and the cards tell me something, but rather I looked at the cards, and they evoked a vision in me. So now I'm not reading the cards, I'm reading that vision. I almost felt like I was making it up. But the questioner confirmed key details, concrete details that I should not have been able to know. So I'm looking at these cards and I suddenly get this vision. I tell this woman, I say, well, you recently went to see a house, the last house that you went to see. Uh, not far from that house, you, if you go back and kind of look around, you should find a dilapidated house. Now, you're not going to buy the dilapidated house, I told her, but that dilapidated house, it has a for sale sign on it. I mean, you probably might have even just ignored it because, you know, it's a rundown house. You don't want to buy that. But the thing is that that dilapidated house, the real estate agent on the sign 
the for sale sign, that real estate agent is the one that you need to contact because they have the house that you that is perfect for you. Now, this woman was shocked because she said that she had just looked at a house the day before and she remembered passing a dilapidated house on the way to see that property and she did notice it because it was at a place where she had to make a turn. So she's getting the directions for how to go. This was before the day that people had phones to guide them. And so she had directions to go where she was supposed to go. And she was at a place where she made the turn. She saw this dilapidated house. And she remembered that it was for sale. And so I thought that was really fascinating. I didn't really know how it happened. And I had other experiences like this, too. Um, And not long after that, I stopped reading tarot cards. Now, on the surface of it, I stopped reading tarot cards because I got a better job. And I got busy with other things. And I also became more interested in working with Yijing, which I still still work with Yijing. And I still don't work with tarot cards. And it's just because, you know, as I said, on the surface, just, you know, things happen. But... I have to wonder, now that my friend Tara reminded me about having read tarot cards, and I remember these experiences, I have to remember if the ego didn't back me away from the tarot cards because things got a little too hot too fast. And it didn't know how to skillfully, it didn't know how I was knowing, just as Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer did. And the fear was not like my image of reality is wrong. I do know that I had this experience of, I don't really know how this is happening and so I'm not sure how, how I can con- consistently get it to happen. You know, it felt like it didn't happen every time. But it happened so clearly in a small number of occasions that it was shocking, sort of surprising. Now, I felt positive, consciously. I thought, this is so cool. But I certainly also thought, I don't know what's going on. And, I, you know, I don't see auras or anything, so I, d- I didn't feel like some kind of traditional psychic but the images we have of a person who should know things in an extraordinary way. In other words, I haven't experienced any extreme forms of fear of extraordinary knowing, but I still understand how uncanny those experiences can feel, and it seems that some significant part of us feels uncomfortable with the whole situation. It's like suddenly being breathed by the great mystery, being played like a flute by sacredness and wonder. And you sort of might not feel like you're up for the music. You know, how is that happening? Now, these days when speaking with clients, friends, or family, I often know what a person needs to say. Even if I shouldn't be able to know it, you know, something that a client is going to tell me or someone I know, and I, I, can, I, can, I know what they're, what they're going to say, but I'll wait a really long time. I won't. I often feel like, well, the person must need to struggle with with this thing that they want to tell me, even though I know it, and I'm not. I don't find it shocking. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm not angry or whatever. I, whatever. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not judging you. But it does bring an awareness of how much we may already know that we won't allow ourselves to know. Like the person probably knows that I know. Or at least they know that it's not going to be as bad as they're building up. And so they're not letting themselves know that it's okay. And all of us, there might be this situation in which we could know so much more. 
but we won't even allow ourselves to try. We know how to make a, a better world. We just know it. And we won't let ourselves know, know that because it seems scary that we're going to have to give up our Keurig coffee machines and our SUVs or something. Or, you know, what if I can't go to Bora Bora whenever I want? I mean, I recently saw someone who wrote a book on some, something to do with ecology. And they were uh, talking about how, well, you know, we still need to be able to you know, travel anywhere we want. And I don't know what world they live in, but as of right now, when you get on a plane, it's causing a problem for somebody, somewhere, many beings in many places, really. It's not one person, but you're creating problems all, all throughout the web of life. And so we have to weigh it really carefully. But this person was saying, no, no, we just, no, you know, we human beings, we like to go places and do things. I couldn't believe such that someone who had written a whole work on, on ecology and uh, as far as I know, it had something to do with knowing differently, di uh, something about agency in the web of life and all this, and yet they wanted to assert their little human agency to go wherever they wanted. So we have, <laughs> we have a lot to think about, I think. But we're going to go further, follow this thread, and it's going to get a little weirder, I think, but it's, it's going to get... Um, more interesting also, I think. So I hope that you'll stay with it. If you have any questions or reflections, or if you have any experiences of extraordinary knowing to share, maybe they frightened you, maybe you're not sure if they did, maybe you think, you know what, it could have been, I thought I was excited, but maybe there is a part of me that was a little nervous about that. But anything like that, please do send them in, share them. I might be able to deal with questions or uh, relate a story of yours in a future contemplation. So go to dangerouswisdom.org. You can uh, contact there, or maybe there's something in your uh, podcast player. I don't know <clears throat> if you have a link to come back to us. But either way, I look forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime... You can just maybe hold that question of what, what are the scarecrows that I might be using to keep reality at bay? Are there any? And can I practice compassion for myself and for others who won't let themselves know things that they really do know or could know? Maybe there are things you already know that you just won't let yourself know. And maybe there are things that you really could know and you're almost too afraid to, to, to even try, maybe out of the fear that it might not work. That can bother us too. Like, I really want to know the way out of this difficulty in my life, but I'm afraid I won't figure it out, so I won't try. Or, I'm afraid I already know, and I don't like the answer. <laughs> I don't like that I'm going to have to let go of something. But if we can just let that compassion be there, just say that it's okay. It's okay if I'm a little scared or a lot scared. It's okay if I don't know everything. You know, like I know something. I know I have to let go of this thing, but I don't know how to go on without it. That's okay. It's okay to step into the mystery. It's okay to make space in ourselves for an apocalypse of thought, an apocalypse of the soul, some apocalyptic love wisdom, a revelation that puts an end to something. 
But just remember, it's only going to put an end to something not real. What's real is going to be there. It's only going to put an end to delusion, suffering, bondage of some kind. So apocalyptic love wisdom is our friend. If we just relax a little bit, smile a little, we'll be okay. The wisdom traditions, they'll guide us. Uh, it's okay, too, that we might have to take it slow. And study, learn, learn how to receive an apocalypse of the soul. Learn how to receive it and take good care of it so that the visionary love wisdom that we receive is something that benefits the whole community of life and not just our career or our little conscious human purposes, our narrow human purposes that we tend to follow. If we use extraordinary knowing as a bag of tricks, that's what we'll do. We'll apply it to win money in the stock market or whatever it might be instead of liberating ourselves and all beings and healing ourselves and the world in mutuality. That's the real potential for apocalyptic love wisdom. Mutual healing and liberation and illumination and nourishment and joy. Peace. Creativity. <laughs> Wonder. That's the good stuff. So join us next time as we go further into apocalyptic love wisdom and uh, in the meantime, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.